The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter. Glory to you, Lord. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Indeed, I have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The baptism of our Lord has always been one of those festivals that I feel like I just don't have a lot to say about. Other festivals like Christmas and Easter or Pentecost or even Reformation, you know, they sort of lend themselves to uh, saying certain things and certain significance. But What about the baptism of our Lord? What is its significance? And what are we to make of all the controversy that surrounds baptism? You know, everything in the church has to have a controversy. You know, the Lord's Supper, the Word of God, baptism. What about the debates regarding, say, infant baptism, for example? Well, let's first consider the scene of the gospel. We spoke about John the Baptist already during Advent. He here is bursting upon the scene. He is dramatically baptizing all of Judea uh, and Jerusalem in the River Jordan in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. This was a heartfelt plea, a plea, not a plea, a plea uh, to repentance, not really unlike, you know, the street preacher Uh, or the revivalist of our modern day, trying to prepare people uh, for the coming of Christ, changing the lives of those in the audience. This was a baptism that was not just ceremonial, but a reflection that the one seeking baptism was a sinner in need of saving. So it's quite a humbling process to go through. The point was to be ready for the Messiah when he came, uh, to not be caught in a state of sin. And of course, there's an urgency with what John is doing. Now, what exactly was John and Jesus' relationship? Uh, Did they know one another? Uh, That's a little bit speculative, but I definitely don't think they were total strangers. Uh, Of course, the Bible says that Mary goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, when both were pregnant. If uh, Mary and Elizabeth then are first cousins, then John and Jesus would have been third cousins. I don't know how often they would have seen one another as third cousins. John actually lived in the Qumran uh, area with the Essene community, 
They were uh, kind of one of the righteous sects uh, uh, in Israel. You had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Essenes. The Essenes are kind of the good guys, uh, we think, but very righteous and seeking holiness. And Qumran, you may know, is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So they were quite good at preserving texts. But I don't know how often they saw one another, maybe only at Thanksgiving and Christmas. I don't know, it's when, it's when you see third cousins. But one assumes that they probably knew each other, but probably more to the point, I think the reputations of one another would have preceded them. Uh, John would have known that his third cousin was an unusually righteous person. No one could say about Jesus that he had ever committed any sins. Uh, And I think John, as a member of this Essene group, Jesus would have understood that John was a pursuer of righteousness as well. That was evident from his preaching. Uh, So to say that Jesus was not the target audience for John's baptism, I think would be an understatement. In fact, John is appreciably embarrassed that Jesus asked to be baptized. Jesus is not the kind of person that's supposed to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, for repentance. Um, No one could say about Jesus that he was a sinner. Uh, I don't think John yet fully understood the nature of Christ as a sinless person who would die for the sins of the world. Because remember later, John, he sends a message when he's in prison to disciples of Jesus, hey, are you really the Messiah? So later in life, John seems to maybe kind of have some second thoughts. But for now, even though he does say, behold, the Lamb of God has come, he doesn't quite understand how sinless Jesus really is. But he's sinless enough that John is like, whoa, whoa, I don't want to baptize you. You need to be baptizing me. And yet Jesus is baptized in this sinner's baptism because Jesus' entire ministry was a ministry for others. Uh, this is uh, the miniature, uh, miniature version of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5. You may be familiar with it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the substitution, you might say, of God for us. So uh, Jesus underwent baptism not because he had sinned, but because he was... Um, in the modern parlance of our times, identifying as a sinner. And lest we have any doubts about that, uh, we have this voice from God coming from the heavens. The other time God speaks, other than perhaps with the the thunder and the eclipse at the cross, is uh, the transfiguration of Jesus, where he says something quite similar to this. But here, uh, God speaks to the Son and says, You are my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well-pleased. So God thinks this is a big deal. But in keeping with all of the biblical revelation, you know, one thing I don't want us to be is what we are accused of being by uh, the Jewish community at the time, and to a degree still to this day, which is some kind of cult that has mistakenly followed this guy named Jesus. Whatever's going on here has to have some continuity with what we call the Old Testament. There has to be continuity. There has to be fulfillment. So is that happening? Well, I would say yes, both symbolically and actually. For example, in the Old Testament, there are times of ritual cleansing 
of the washing of water. According to Leviticus, for example, for a leper to become ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, they must, quote, wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, and bathe with water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. Uh, so, yes, baptism is prefigured in the Old Testament. There are many dramatic acts of water, though, in the Old Testament that both Peter and Paul pick up on, and they say, ah, this is kind of like baptism. Baptism is now this, this thing that reminds us of this. One is the parting of the Red Sea, and then you have Noah's flood. Uh, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, uh, where he's speaking of the parting of the Red Sea. I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, clearly, whatever is happening at the Red Sea, this is a type and shadow, you might say, of future baptisms. It's not everything about it literally. However, there is Israel before the Red Sea, and there is Israel after the Red Sea. And the parting of these waters then was an initiation, a separation from their old life to the new life that they would have after their exodus from Egypt. So in that sense, through water, something new is happening. Now Peter hearkens all the way back to Noah's Ark, saying that the waters of the flood correspond, or the waters of baptism, rather, correspond to the flood. And that baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it appears that the New Testament writers, in perhaps trying to make sense of the Great Commission that Jesus gives to go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, go do this in all nations, the importance of baptism, they're saying they're looking back at the Old Testament and there, there's some inspiration that these cataclystic events of the Red Sea parting and the flood, they are foreshadowings of the power of water and the power of baptism. In each case, you have the signal of something new happening, something supernatural. Maybe the best summary of this is the radical change that seems to happen with baptism in Romans 6. We always read this at the beginning of every funeral service, for example. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So something is happening in our baptisms. So why do we have so many disagreements about what exactly is happening? I want to give just a few, this is obviously a whole debate you could have for hours and hours, but I want to give a few issues that I have with both the understanding of infant baptism and so-called believer's baptism. That's, I say so-called, sometimes people call it adult baptism or something else, but we'll call it believer's baptism. I agree with my pro-infant baptism friends in our own Lutheran tradition that something significant is happening at baptism. We like to point out what Peter says, baptism now saves you. I think that can be overplayed, but 
that for another day. That God is doing something with this child that they have been marked in some way by the Holy Spirit. We put oil on their forehead and say you've been sealed and marked by the cross of Christ. But it is not a magic act that that child can reject even this supernatural mark that is left upon them in baptism, which can logically lead to someone asking, well, what good is it if it can so easily be shaken off? Well, for my believer's baptism, friends, I would ask, if baptism is only a public acknowledgement of what God has done, then why do you need to get baptized at all? If nothing is happening, and this is a caricature, believer's baptism advocates wouldn't quite probably go this far, but, um, but if nothing is happening when the water and word and person are brought together in this specific formula, right, of being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, why not just have the person stand before the congregation and say, okay, I've given my life to the Lord? Why also accompany that declaration with this act of baptism? What's the significance? Well, part of the problem is that we end up in camps and we debate and we fight and we, we sort of, um, we have separated, I think, the supernatural from the symbolic or we, the sacramental, you might say, from the symbolic. We said these things are one or the other. This has happened in the debates around the Lord's Supper, to be sure. Well, it's a symbol, or it's only sacramental. Well, these things can be both. There is symbolism in the Lord's Supper. There's symbolism in baptism. That's what the New Testament authors are talking about, are symbols of flood and Red Sea's parting. And also something supernatural, or something sacramental is happening. It is something that can be rejected. There's plenty of evidence of that, right? We... I, I don't think any of us would say that the mere act of being baptized as an, an infant is any guarantee of anything. We have known many who have been baptized and never darken the door of a church again. But it is something to which you can return. And that's ultimately what I would say your baptism is, whether you receive it as an adult or as a child. In that sense, it's a gift from God, and that is its power. It's a claim that God has made on you a claim to which you can return. It's like your childhood home. You know, if your parents had never uh, left it, never sold it off, and you grow up in age, and maybe you have a traumatic event and you need a place to stay, you can always go home to your childhood home. It's like a seat at the table. You know, this is your chair, and, and no one can take no one else can occupy that chair. They can't take that seat away from you. You can leave it. You can get up and leave the table. But no one else takes that spot. Or it's like a degree granted by a university. Um, you might not use that degree. I have a degree in music and really hardly use it in any meaningful sense, but I've got it. Uh, I kind of joke both of my degrees are from institutions that probably won't last my lifetime, uh, uh, they're both shrinking and dying quickly. So I may be without two degrees here pretty soon. But in the days of the early church, and perhaps in my grand or my great-grandchildren's lives, these kinds of public symbols will hold more value because increasingly they will become markers over and against the majority's norms. 
To be baptized truly is, and in a post-Christendom world or a post-Christian world, where, say, less than half the nation believes in God or goes to church, etc., it will be seen perhaps as even a dangerous thing, just as baptism, say, in the Muslim world uh, is a very dangerous thing and definitely can cost you your life. But for you, one who struggles against their sin, one who listens to the call of John the Baptist to repent and believe and trust in the good news, uh, who in our more honest moments of uh, moral clarity, we should and probably do wonder from time to time, does God love me? Can God love me? Am I lovable? Will God abandon me? Is he through with me? Have I finally done so much that I have lost the possibility of being blessed by him? When you are in that place, remember your baptism. Remember that it was not just your decision or your parents' decision on your behalf, but a claim that God made on you that is seen through baptism. The power of Jesus' baptism is that he lived as a sinner for us. The power of our baptism is that we receive the benefits of God living for us. Amen.